Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. At Acuity Insurance, we believe the things you do for your business every day are nothing short of heroic. And you deserve someone equally heroic to protect them. Like the breaking ground on new construction things. The every box and barcode matters things. And the driving the family business forward things. We put our all into covering your business so you can focus on the things you love most. That's the power of heart. Acuity Insurance, wholeheartedly for you. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 30th, 2019, as the Chicago White Sox and all of Major League Baseball has wrapped up the regular season. On this episode, we, we will be previewing the postseason and give our picks on who we think will meet in the World Series Plus, answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, let's talk about how the Chicago White Sox finished in 2019. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox found a way to avoid 90 losses this season. With a little help from Mother Nature, yes. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they could use any help they can get. But no, it was a, you know, it was a good... Uh, last week of the season for them. And I was very glad that Major League Baseball changed its compensation rules for free agent signings because I remember before when you had to worry about the 10th pick or the 11th pick and one being protected and one being vulnerable to losing if you signed a free agent and the White Sox would have been in that position uh, in this last game. And fortunately, uh, you know, that doesn't apply anymore. The top pick is always protected. So we could... You know, whether they had the 10th pick or the 11th pick, and they now they're picking 11th next year, it's pretty much immaterial. Right. The pick that they could lose, depending on what type of free agents they go after, is the second round. Yes. Followed by the third, and then the fourth, depending on how many free agents they sign with the qualifying offer. We'll talk about that 
uh, most definitely throughout the entire month of October as we kind of shift here going from the regular season to the off season for the White Sox, which is really key still for them in this stage of the rebuild. But before we talk about the stage of the rebuild, a, a couple of, of newsworthy items for the White Sox ending this season. First is that Tim Anderson wins the batting title for all of Major League Baseball, not just the American League. He's the first White Sox player to do that since old aches and pains Luke Appling uh, back in the 30s. And Anderson finished the year hitting 335, uh, which is a huge jump. It's a 95-point jump in batting average from 2018 to 2019. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. And then on the other side is Jose Abreu. He ends up leading the American League in RBIs with 123. Anthony Rendon of the Washington Nationals had the most in the major leagues this year at 126. Jose Abreu did lead the White Sox in home runs with 33, and he led the team in doubles with 38. So an outstanding as far as counting season for Jose Abreu with the home runs, doubles, and RBIs. After the game on Sunday, NBC Sports Chicago's Chuck Garfine was interviewing both Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu. And Anderson finished by saying he would be very disappointed, Jim, if Abreu wasn't brought back. And in Rick Hahn's final press conference during the 2019 season, he joked that in negotiation school, they won't be using this as an example between the White Sox and Jose Abreu on how to conduct business as Every side, Jose Abreu, Jerry Reinsdorf, the clubhouse has made it very publicly clear they want him back. So, are Hans' hands tied when it comes to Jose Abreu, Jim? It seems like it. Um, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Paul Canerco, his last time going through free agency. Even though they signed Jose Abreu, his replacement at first base, and even though Canerco, you know, all his performance, anything you looked at, eye test, um, peripherals, any any kind of performance indicator suggested that he probably should have retired a year before he did, but they just left the door open for him. They reserved a roster spot for him. Ended up being kind of costly because they ended up losing Marcus Semyon because they didn't have a roster spot to evaluate him with. And uh, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a problem, but they, they had to do it you know, for whoever determined it. And it was probably Jerry Reinsdorf. They had to do it. And so they brought him back in this case, you know, probably the same thing, a little less loyal to Abreu than Canerco just because of the world series thing. But it sounds like Abreu is coming back. And, you know, the good news is that they can use a first baseman and he had a very good year and uh, White Sox fans should want him back for the final weekend of the season. I mean, there was a lot of things that we were concerned about when we previewed the series on Sox machine live, how were they going to get through the weekend on the starting pitching front, they have enough pitchers, and I guess Mother Nature really bailed them out, canceling one of the games, Jim, on, on Friday. But I think when you look at just the play on the final weekend, the one thing that stuck out to me was Ronaldo Lopez. I think that even though it's the Detroit Tigers, okay, and they're not a very good team, as we saw in the final weekend, and just look at their entire season. They didn't even win close to 50 games. I think what they finished with 47 wins in the season. Yeah, 47 and 114. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, Tigers fans. Uh, I would say I'm, I feel your pain, but we complained a lot about a 62 and 100 team last year. I can't imagine a 47 and 114 team. But for Ronaldo Lopez to finish the season the way he did, Jim, only allowing one run in his last start of the season, I think that is a positive, and hopefully it's something that he can carry into the offseason to prepare for 2020. But I feel like 
we're a broken record by saying that because that's the same thing that we said last year. Yeah, it's uh, it can be a little bit misleading ending a season with the start against Detroit. Although the Tigers did rough him up a little bit. Uh, you know, he's had some great starts, had some bad starts. So that you know, him beating Detroit isn't like Dylan Cease beating Detroit, where Dylan Cease's three of his four wins have come against the Tigers. You know, Lopez you know has been kept honest by them. So to have a good start to end a season is you know it, it's good. You know, you can't take it away from him. I would say that with his, uh, you know, with, with the way he went about it, the fastball command was good. He got ahead, was aggressive, attacked through strikes. That's great. Uh, the Tigers are a team where you can bully them around a little bit with strikes. So that's maybe something that he wouldn't have the same success with the kind of uh, fastball he showed. And the slider was better than usual. Not a power slider. You know, it didn't get a ton of swings and misses, but kept him off balance. was really hard to square him up. And, um, yeah, that that's really the, uh, I guess... Yeah, my opinion of Lopez really hasn't changed much over the course of the season and that, um, you know, he's a fastball first guy, really needs precise command with it. Uh, can't really rely on his slider to take over if his fastball isn't working. And I didn't really see that from him later in the year. So going into the offseason, I think the, the objective for him is one, either to make his fastball command the best on the staff or to develop a secondary arsenal and, you know, whether it comes down to pitch modeling or, um, you know, re- the curveball, maybe bringing that more into the rotation, uh, arsenal repertoire, I meant, um, you know, maybe that's the way to go, but just having a way to get hitters off his fastball, if the fastball isn't working, um, it really seems to be, uh, you know, the, the primary objective to be, and also if you, if you want to move him to the bullpen, you know, fastball, in and of itself isn't necessarily going to be, you know, something that changes really the way hitters think about him. Uh, Cause he doesn't really have the, the threat of that power breaking ball to get hitters out the fastball. So I think either way, whether he's in the rotation or whether you shift him to the bullpen, cause he gets crowded out uh, having more power depth, late sharp break on his uh, slider really is uh, going to be the difference maker between him and like, you know, being a back of the rotation starter or somebody who makes more of an impact in one role or another. For the final series of the season, was there any other particular performances from the White Sox that stood out to you? Well, Kelvin Herrera, he's he's looked better. Although I give the homer uh, and the uh, his last inning of work to put his ERA above six for the year, but he at least showed something um, that has, uh, you know, maybe staying power next year. Also, Danny Mendick drawing a walk. I was really hoping you would um, just because of the White Sox tormented history with having guys who take uh, more than a month to draw their first walk and foreshadows uh, years of plate discipline issues. I was really keeping an eye on that category and, and he had, I think, five or six three ball counts uh, and a few of them he swung at ball four. So I really wanted him to have some differentiation between his batting average on base percentage, and he finally got it in his last game. So that was, uh, well, yeah, I might have been paying more attention to that than everybody else, but it was something I'm paying attention to. I'm being honest here. <laughs> so then moving from what happened on the field, again, the Chicago White Sox avoid 90 losses because they only play 161 games. Their final record on the season is 72 and 89. So that's two more wins that we projected before this season. Mm-hmm. So that is good. That's a 10 game win improvement for the White Sox from 2018 to 2019. And again, because of the excitement of the outstanding play, especially towards the end of the season from the encore, 
of Tim Anderson, Aloy Jimenez, and Yoan Mikata, and throwing Jose Abreu, uh, which we think that he's coming back, and of course how great Lucas Giolito was. That there's a lot of White Sox fans excited to see what will transpire this upcoming offseason. And Rick Hahn touched on a few of those items in his end-of-season media scrum, specifically listing positions he needs to address at free agency, which he said right field, DH, and two starting pitchers. So when we have our off-season plan project coming up uh, later in October, keep that in mind that you need to figure out a solution for right field, DH, and two starting pitchers. Uh, I'm a bit surprised, though, Jim, because Han, to openly say that these are areas that we need to address, uh, is interesting to me because typically he likes to keep things closer to the chest and and not give any clues on on what direction that he wants to go. Are you a bit surprised that he came out and just listed, we need help in right field DH and we need two starting pitchers? A little bit. It's a little bit uncharacteristic for him. But at the same time, you know, we've spent time talking about just how dismal the production was and how... Uh, well, I guess historically awful relative to the rest of the league, the home run um, explosion across the league and, and right field only had three homers, four homers. It was up to five, six, home six. Runs. Oh yeah. Cause Polka hit a couple to, uh, yes. to add to it, but yes, uh, six homers at the end of the year. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that those are the, the biggest needs. You look elsewhere around the diamond. If you think Nick Madrigal is going to step in second base, for most of next year. And if Luis Roberts going to take over in center, then, you know, those positions stick out as areas of need with no um, internal replacements. And so it's relatively obvious. He's not saying anything that's a surprise. Um, I, I think, you know, if I were Han, I might not want to say that just because he did add a DH this year <laughs> and he did add a right fielder this year and they were terrible. Um, you know, they're healthy or bad or uh, both, but um, yeah, it's, you know, so he's trying to solve these problems for a second year in a row. So that's not really the most, flattering representation of his offseason but you know he's being honest and uh, a little bit more I guess forthright as usual or at least you know, more detailed than usual and uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize him for it or say he should do that less I appreciated it he also mentioned when asked about if everyone is returning to the coaching staff that it was premature to say so Jim on the coaching seats we I am 100% sure that Rick Renteria is coming back Mm-hmm. but is there the possibility that we could see new faces on the bench beside him in 2020? Well, I would assume Don Cooper's a lock just because when you talk to people uh, who are around the White Sox or you know, uh, people have covered them, you know, closer, they're just, he's basically intractable. So I would be very surprised if it were him unless it were for some kind of health reason, his call. Um, but when you look at the other coaches, you know, if you're, if you're counting it like as a bigger shakeup than like Daryl Boston at first base coach or, uh, yeah, Nick Capra third or the bullpen catcher, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. It depends how far you go. But if you're, if you're talking like main guys, you know, you have Todd Steverson who, you know, had maybe some success stories with Yohan Mankata and Tim Anderson, uh, you know, make, making massive jumps and, and maybe they're a bit lucky with batting average and balls in play, but they maintain it for the course of the full season. You can't take that away from them. So, um, you know, he had some success stories, but, uh, by and large, uh, the plate discipline is awful and the power didn't make up for it. And uh, plate discipline and walks has really been an issue for a while with guys taking steps back when they get to the majors. So, um, you know, that might be something to address. Or, you know, if you're looking at, 
infield duties and, and Tim Anderson's uh, error rates and the footwork and how he hasn't really made steps. Maybe they look at replacing Joe McEwing um, as somebody who can offer more coaching help. Uh, maybe a different uh, approach because we hear all the time about how you know Tim Anderson's working with Joe McEwing, but uh, you know at the end of the year he's still making the yeah. You know, I, I think at the end of the year the the errors were. A bit less frequent, but still sometimes the sloppy footwork and off-balance throws that, uh, you know, inexplicably bouncing them when he had more time. So, you know, maybe that's one area to look. And given how long that, you know, how long they've been in the organization and how poor the results have been across the board, and maybe you can throw Daryl Boston into it when it comes to outfield defense, but, um, you know, they've been there for a really long time with less than stellar results. So even if it seems a bit unfair to fire them at this point rather than last season when the results were really abysmal. Um, it's a surprise they've been around for that long and you know maybe some of these changes are overdue. Maybe it's not firing them. Maybe their contracts have been expired well, I, I, after the 2019 yeah, season. Yeah, they're kind of the same thing though in, in, in one way, just that if they have the option to bring them back and don't, it kind of sends the same message. Well, you see, Jim, back in 2016, Robin Ventura's contract had expired. <laughs> so the White Sox didn't fire Robin Ventura. They just decided to not pick up his contract again. Well, they really, they, at least publicly, they made it seem like it was Ventura's call to come back and he refused to. So he quit. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe the same things applied here. Maybe some of the coaches' contracts have expired and Rick Hahn's deciding to go in another direction. You're not firing them because they're no longer under contract. Yeah, I mean, that's the way he said for last year. Um, when, when looking at his comments that he made about the coaching staff last year, he said they're all under contract for 2019. Um, he didn't say that this time around. So, you know, not knowing the contracts of guys, perhaps they are up or perhaps, you know, that doesn't factor into some changes being made one way or the other. Seems like there are going to be changes. He did highlight on base percentage. Yeah. As an area that they need to improve upon. I wouldn't be surprised if they go in a different direction on the hitting coach. It's something that I've been clamoring for for a little bit. As it just, you know, Todd Severson's been in the position for a little bit, and the White Sox are not approving. That's both on a talent front and I think approach front. And maybe it's time for a new voice for the White Sox, at least hitting wise. But again, we'll see. Uh, on what directions White Sox go as far as uh, bringing back coaches to help surround Rick Renteria for the 2020 season. I know there are a few of you listening to this. I would wish that the White Sox would move on from Rick Renteria as Joe Madden is now available, and I'm sure he's going to get picked up. Uh, it's Black Friday. Uh, I'm sorry, not Black Friday. Black Monday throughout Major League Baseball. I'm just picturing Black Friday for Major League Baseball. Yeah, there's no such thing anymore. <laughs> it used to be the winter meetings, but... It's like the day after the draft, I guess. Uh, true. Very true. Where <laughs> trades start opening up again. Uh, Black Monday, in which more coaches get fired. Uh, there are already rumors out of Queens that the Mets front office is talking about the job status of Mickey Callaway. Uh, so more jobs would be open up, meaning that more managers will be moving on from jobs. But the White Sox, again, I do believe will be sticking with Rick Retoria for the 2020 season. And who knows, maybe some of those ex-managers could be possible choices for the White Sox uh, as, a, as a possible coach on the bench. We'll see. Yeah, the one thing you, when you mentioned about Todd Steverson and, and thinking about it is that you know when Todd Steverson was hired, he was brought in to be a top-down hitting coach like Don Cooper. You know, sets the tone for the rest of the organization from the top. 
You know, the White Sox tried to do that with Todd Steverson coming in from Oakland. It was their, one of their rare external hires with a thorough process. And so I don't want to slam. Yeah, you know, I'd like to see them go back to the, the drawing board with the same you know idea of recruiting from all over. But, you know, now that they're adding hitting coaches and hitting analysts down the system, um, you know, they, they let go of Matt Lyle, but Ryan Johansson's still around. You know, they're adding more hitting analysts and such. You know, maybe they want, you know, it would make sense to have a hitting coach who's if they want to set a top-down thing, is more aligned with some of the guys they brought in who are, you know, maybe actually starting some kind of bottom-up type uh, program. Any other takeaways from Han's regular season finale press conference that you think is worthwhile to pay attention to? Well, you know, I I wrote about it, and and basically my takeaways were that he seems like he's signaling action without wanting to overpromise too much. (laughs) Like you said, like, you know, he, he... somehow laid out like a bunch of stages. Like you said that, you know, the, the rebuilding stage is closing and they're moving on to the next stage of adding, but that's not the same thing as contending or <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase. It was like putting themselves in position to contend. And, you know, I think from our distance, from how we're watching it, it really doesn't make a difference. It's all adding players who help the White Sox win this year and the next year and the year after that. So, you know, whether he thinks there are five stages in front of him and we think there's just one, you know, the results should more or less be the same. Uh, and so I'm hoping that this is really Han's own way of signaling an aggressive offseason, even if he doesn't really want to maybe go through the winning the winter thing again, where, you know, there's a lot of action and excitement that doesn't pan out. I'm looking for his exact quote here. Um, yes, the next stage, a path towards heightened competitiveness and the most imp- most important stage, winning. You know, that's, you know, from us, I, I, yeah, from our distance, from how we're looking at it, it, it's basically all the same. Like the next stage and path towards heightened competitiveness, competitiveness should all be adding good players who help them win uh, more than 81 games. That was one of my takeaways as well, Jim, from his press conference, which brings us back at least to the tenure of Rick Hahn, to a moment that we knew when the White Sox started this rebuild, they would be coming back to this situation again. And this situation, for those that are listening, I'm asking you to pull out your history books. The chapter 2014, you want to take a look at that one? Because after the 2014 season, the Chicago White Sox were 73-89. and and they had a little bit of a core that they built. They signed Jose Abreu the offseason before. He was only 27 years old, paired with Adamine, Avisil Garcia, Chris Sale, Jose Gatana. In June, they drafted Carlos Rodon in the first round with the expectation he would rise quickly through the system, and he did. He made his debut April of 2015. That was the White Sox new core that they were going to set out to be competitive. And we know what they went through in that offseason as they traded for Jeff Samarja, they signed Adam LaRoche, and David Robertson, and Melky Cabrera. Now bringing it to 2019, the new core for the White Sox to be competitive, Tim Anderson, Yoan Makata, Aloy Jimenez, Lucas Giolito, Dylan Cease, and Ronaldo Lopez. Now the difference between 2014 and 2019, because again, if you're going to go through this rebuild and you're going to try to learn from the past failures uh, try to actually learn the lessons to have a different result when you are competitive or try to be aggressive in the offseason gym uh, I think is depth you know the 2014 squad you mentioned him earlier Marcus Simeon they used him to acquire Jeff Sabarja that trade is not looking good today 
In 2019, uh, the 2019 squad, at least next year, Michael Kopech, Luis Robert, Nick Magical, they're waiting to join the team. So where Rick Hahn is currently, as far as building a new core, he has immediate help behind it in Kopech coming off from Tommy John and Luis Robert and Nick Magical. I think where he is now from five years ago, he's got a deeper core to work with. I think they're back at the same stage after the 2014 season heading to 2015, do you think the White Sox are at that stage? And we are now a little bit of deja vu, and now we're watching how Han responds this time around and trying to be aggressive in the offseason. Yeah, I think by and large, as you mentioned, there's more internal farm help. Um, they're, they're not, it doesn't sound like they're going to decimate that depth. And, and really, maybe aside from Andrew Vaughn, you know, depending on what they want to do with, uh, you know, Jose Abreu and the other first baseman slash DHs they have, you know, Gavin Sheets and, you know, Zach Collins. Yeah, however, you want to break that down, or if you want to go into the veteran market for first baseman since they're cheaper than usual, maybe, you know, they could trade Andrew Vaughn for, uh, somebody of note, you know, like a Christian Yelich type trade. But when it comes to, you know, the big picture, it sounds like they're they're holding on to their top prospects and the second tier and third tier of prospects really just didn't have that good enough a year to really have guys a deal. Maybe Jonathan Stever is the one interesting guy who might have made himself tradable, but everybody else in that second tier is more or less off limits because they'd be selling uh, damaged goods or guys, you know, at their lowest value and you're better off holding on to them and seeing if they can regain some of their past promise. Uh, so there's that. They, they shouldn't, uh, you know, trade, have like a Samarja-like trade that uh, all of a sudden just, uh, you know, turns them from a top 10 farm system to a bottom 10 farm system, which something like that would do. So uh, there, that's, I think, a key difference. The, you know, where it's the same and where Han will have to prove that he's better is free agency and when you look at that winning the winter free agency with Melky Cabrera and David Robertson uh and then you know the following season with you know Todd Frazier and Brett Laurie and just you know these uh guys that they brought in these veteran acquisitions just they he paid a lot for average production market rate production and uh, they weren't difference makers they didn't uh uh really alter the scope of you know, what the White Sox are going to produce. And they, they cost a lot of money and they limited uh, the ways they could add and the White Sox enthusiasm for adding. You know, when you look at the the way they change catchers and everything, just didn't work out. So, you know, the pro scouting has always been Rick Hahn's biggest weakness. Even, you know, this um, this past season with, with James McCann and Alex Colomay having good seasons, but scary second halves, you know, are they going to be a classic Rick Hahn uh, underperformer next year uh, when, when you're trying to project them? Yeah, that's kind of the scary thing. And he hasn't proven that he can add guys. I guess he, you have the Manny Machado family ties as an excuse, but when you look at the way Alonzo and John Jay perform, they fit right into Rick Hahn's previous uh, backlog of acquisitions as guys who just completely uh, fizzled out or just look like they forgot how to play baseball. So, I don't, uh, you know, Han hasn't done anything to show that he's any better at pro scouting or that his staff is any better at pro scouting. And um, it, at this point, they have plenty of money and ways to add in free agency, and they just have to prove that uh, the guys that they're acquiring are ready to contribute in an above average level for the money they're being paid. In that 2014-2015 offseason, adding, adding Adam LaRoche, Jeff Samarja, David Robertson, and Melky Cabrera, Rick Hahn added $44.8 million in payroll with those four additions. 
Fast forward to the present. Do you think or do you suspect the White Sox will beat that amount, $44.8 million in new additions this offseason, Jim? I would hope so. I think if they they spend around the same, um, it would suggest that they're trying to cast a wide net and, and patch different positions with guys who are maybe not entering their, you know, close to their primes. Emilio Bonifacio is another guy who, who uh, oh, was signed yeah. to be a bench player. Yeah. So you had him too. So yeah, it's another guy who was, you know, was given a roster spot and uh, you know, uh, significant salary, you know, and, and just did not perform. So they're all over the place. Yeah. I forgot to mention LaRoche, but yeah, he was involved too. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, I think uh, this is the time to spend big to maybe set a record, depending on, you know, who they go after. You know, maybe, uh, you know, as Monte Grandal doesn't sign for the $68 million that Jose Abreu did because he's a catcher on the other side of 30. But, you know, the average annual value uh, records maybe probably should fall this time around. And, you know, if they go big for a guy like Garrett Cole, then, yeah, it, this would be the time to do it. Uh, one way or another, they should break some kind of records for free agent acquisitions. We'll be previewing the upcoming offseason activity as well as pre, uh, provide more in-depth recaps of the 2019 season as we begin our position review podcast. Next week, it will be the infielders that we will recap. And if you would like to submit your final 2019 grades for the Chicago White Sox players, managers, in the front office, you can do so right now on SoxMachine.com by clicking on the post 2019 final grades survey but coming up next on the podcast even though the white Sox season is over major league baseball moves on to the playoffs which should be a very exciting period especially this season we have four teams with 100 plus wins could we see some upsets during the postseason we'll be talking about that next on the Sox machine podcast do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's as if they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. So what if there are sites annoying and doesn't have the events you want? The real question is, how easy could it be if those ticketing sites actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets at a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand up from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it and I use SeatGeek all the time during the White Sox season and I always go to SeatGeek as well whenever there are other events like Bears games or Chicago Bulls games or Blackhawks games as those regular seasons are about to start and I always go to SeatGeek first because there's always a price match guarantee every stadium seeming to go to digital tickets it's easy to download the tickets onto your smartphone plus SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web so they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 and when they put them on an interactive seat map have a better understanding of what the view looks like from those seats and making my final decision. The best part is that SeatGeek will get you $10 off your first purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase. Again, that's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. Heading into the postseason, we will hear a couple of big storylines throughout the broadcast. One, we do have four 100-plus win teams in the postseason for the first time in Major League Baseball history. 
That's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Uh, Second is home runs. We're going to hear a lot about home run totals and the juice ball as the Minnesota Twins won the home run title and they set a brand new league record hitting 307 home runs as a team one more than the New York Yankees. And 24 teams this season hit more than 200 home runs. So we used to think hitting 200 home runs was this magic number. That was always a good thing if the White Sox could hit that. Well, now you got teams hitting more than 300. So the bar is rising. And one would think that in this postseason, we're still going to see a lot of home runs. And Jim, what I found fascinating is reading on MLB.com, Mike Petriello, uh, he'll be calling the American League wildcard game with Jason Benetti on ESPN. He found that the postseason teams last year that won the home run advantage during the postseason games had a win-loss record of 19-4. and That's pretty good, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 2017, they were 23-8. and In 2016, they were 27 and 1. The team that hits more home runs in the game have a incredible advantage in the postseason. So is it as simple as to say when it comes to this postseason, in this particular season where the ball is flying out of the ballpark, is it all about the home run in the 2019 postseason? It seems like it just because with the way the ball is flying out, you can't count on preventing the team you're playing from hitting homers too. So I think it's an arms race a little bit with uh, you know, a little bit of mutually assured destruction when it comes to the way these guys hit the ball to the park and all these teams can do it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's their strength. It's how they define themselves offensively. And when you face, you know, staffs like the Astros or bullpens like the Yankees, you really can't count on stringing, great plate appearances together and having, you know, four out of five guys reach base. So you do have to strike quickly and you know, hopefully with guys on base, but if not, just even you know, a few solo shots can go a long way. So yeah, I would expect that to be the defining characteristic just because that's uh, the way the game's been going. All right. So let's start with the preview of the American league postseason. And on SoxMachine.com, we are having a postseason pick'em, so you can play along as we are going to be making our predictions of each of the series in the postseason, and you can make your picks as well on who will win the wildcard games, the divisional series, the championship series, and then the World Series. So we're going to start in the American League first, and then we're going to go over to the National League. So looking at the wildcard game for the American League, it's the Tampa Bay Rays at the Oakland Athletics. This is going to be at 7.10 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday night. Again, this broadcast is going to be on ESPN. On the pitching front, the Rays have announced it's going to be Charlie Morton for them. On the Athletics, they haven't announced yet, but according to NBC Sports in California, uh, the A's beat reporters are reporting that either it's going to be Sean Manaya or Mike Fierce for the athletics on the mound. And it could be Minaya as Minaya is 4-0 with a 1.21 ERA with 30 strikeouts to 7 walks in the month of September. He's been pitching very well for the A's. And the season series between the A's and Rays in 7 games, the A's had the advantage. They won 4 out of 7 games. Very tight games between the A's and Rays this year. But looking at the overall strength of each team, Jim... And if you even use it as simple as runs scored and ERA, 
The strength for the Rays is pitching. They were fourth for starters in ERA. They have the best bullpen ERA in all of Major League Baseball, but the Athletics do well for themselves. They're top 10 in both. But offensively, the A's have a top 10 offense where the Rays were 17th in baseball. So in this one-game playoff between the Rays and A's, who do you like in the wild card game between Tampa and Oakland? I want to say Oakland just because I really like postseason games in Oakland. The crowd is amazing, but I think I like the Rays for this one game just because of Charlie Morton and, and the way he can you know, manhandle teams for six innings at a time, hand the uh, hand the ball over to, as you mentioned, a very good bullpen. While the A's, I think, are you know, their pitching staff you know, has had some injuries and guys banged up and, and might be harder to string that together. So I'm going to go with Morton. And that one makes sense. I mean, this is the reason why the Rays, uncharacteristic of them, went out and gave Charlie Morton this contract that they signed him during the offseason. A brilliant move on their part is so they could win this one-game playoff and then move on to the next series. I'm going to go with the home team. I think the A's can muster enough runs against Charlie Morton to hand it off to their bullpen to Liam Hendricks and win a very close game. I'm thinking like 3-2 in this game, but I'm going to go with the home team. I'm going to go with the Athletics. So, so far, we are different. Jim has the Rays winning the game. I have the Athletics. So, moving into Division Series 1, as Jim has the Rays going to face the Houston Astros and I have the A's facing the Houston Astros. For the Houston Astros, against Oakland this year, they were 11-8. Against Tampa... They were three and four. The thing about Oakland is offensively third in baseball and run scored starting pitching third in ERA bullpen second in ERA. To me, I don't think it really matters between the Rays or A's. I just think that they're overmatched in a five game series having to face Houston. But since you have the Rays moving on, Jim, do you think Tampa could upset Houston? I don't think they can. I, I liked Houston last year and, and they disappointed me, but uh, I, I like him again this year. Um, just the the <laughs> Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole is really hard for a team to match up against. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the, the Rays though are, you know, they, they have that bullpen and then the kind of a modular pitching staff that allows them to be competitive in games where you wouldn't expect them to be. That's why, the, you know, they've been able to outperform their, projections and their uh their payroll and, and and be competitive year after year because they're great at at maximizing whatever small advantages they can they can add up i just think you know when you face a team like the astros who have the pitching staff they do and have the thunder they do just can be hard for them to keep up you know with them in a five game series although yeah i would say that i like you know when it comes to um, the short series, you know, I'd rather face the Astros for five games than seven, just because, uh, yeah, you, you'd expect the differences to play out over the course of a longer series. So I think they could surprise them. Yeah. I, I like the Rays matchup against the Astros better than I would Oakland, but I still like Houston in the end. You want to guess at how many games Houston, I mean, are you expecting a sweep in the divisional series between the Astros and Rays? I'm going to go four. Yeah, I have Astros in four games over the A's. So even though we have different winners of the wild card game, we both have the Houston Astros winning the divisional series and going to the American League Championship Series. Then that moves over to the other divisional series. This is the New York Yankees and the Minnesota Twins. The Yankees have home field advantage for this five-game series. 
The last time that the Minnesota Twins won a playoff game, it was against the New York Yankees, and it was Johan Santana on the mound. And this was back in 2004, as Santana won a pitcher's duel against Mike Messina of the Yankees, winning game one of that divisional series two to nothing. Since then, the Twins have lost 13 straight playoff games. Ten of those games have been to the New York Yankees. Jim, game one is on Friday in New York. Can the Twins win a game in this series? I think they can just because the Yankees staff is a little bit weird right now uh, with pitcher injuries and suspensions and everything else. Uh, Given the amount of thunder in the Twins lineup, I think they can shock somebody whether it's you know like severino coming back from injury or paxton who is battling like a nerve issue in his glute and um you know, Tanaka, you know if he hangs a couple singers they could do some damage there there's a there's ways for the twins to score against this pitching staff in a way that yeah they can pile up some runs but um i i think severino has shown enough to where they have enough starters to get by against a team that is also a little bit short in the pitching department and then looking Comparing the two teams, offensively, starters and bullpen, offensively, these two teams are the top-scoring teams in all of baseball. The Yankees were first in runs scored, and they only scored four more runs than the Minnesota Twins. On the starting pitching front, the Yankees, because of injuries, were right in the middle of Major League Baseball. They were 15th in starter ERA at 4.52. The Twins were better than the Yankees. They were 11th. And then the bullpen, pretty close, which is a bit of a surprise. The Yankees were 9th. As far as bullpen ERA at 4.06, the Twins were 10th in bullpen at 4.16. So, again, two extremely firepower offenses. Who do you like in this series, Jim, especially with it being a short series of just five games? Uh, Do the Twins have enough starting pitching to hold the Yankees back and give their offense an opportunity to maybe upset the Bronx Bombers? I want to say... Well, actually, I want to say no, because <laughs> I think it's, I think it's funny. Like I, I don't. I guess I don't hate the Yankees as much as a lot of fans do, just because living out in New York, I have some friends who are good Yankees fans. I enjoy talking baseball with them, so I don't mind seeing them happy. So uh, you know, when it comes to the Twins, I'm I'm amused by how they've been automatic uh, losses, or at least you know their automatic wins to the Yankees in the postseason, and I'm kind of amused by that and want to see it continue. So I guess. Uh, that's kind of fun. I think they can get one win out of it, but I would, I'm still thinking Yankees in four. Yeah, I have the same prediction as well. I think the Twins will win game three at home uh, in front of the, the faithful. Uh, maybe be Jake Odorizzi on the mound for the Twins, and that will get his uh, price sticker to go up as far as cost coming into this offseason uh, as he is a free agent. Uh, But I'm with you. I I have the Yankees winning in four games. But, hey, the Twins do win a playoff game uh, this time around. And if they don't, uh, then the drought continues uh, for the Minnesota Twins. Very odd to have that long of a postseason losing streak, especially against one particular team. All right. So for both of us, for the American League Championship Series, we have the Houston Astros against the New York Yankees again. This is the same matchup back in 2017. It was a fantastic American League Championship Series that went seven games. When you look at the Astros and Yankees, I think it's got an opportunity to go seven games, and it's a very tight series, but do you see it the same way, Jim? I like Houston more. Um, 
I think there's more of a difference just because, as I mentioned with Colin Verlander, the Yankees have, um, you know, they have a great offense, but they can get shut down by great pitching. I mean, that's not unique to anybody, but with their, you know, their their power approach, the amount they strike out, they are susceptible to just getting you know, rolled over sometimes. Um, like a guy like Gleyber Torres, you know, a lot of his numbers are uh, are beating up the Orioles. Like his performance against the rest of the league, you know, more or less, um, you know, pedestrian. Luke Voigt has, has been struggling. They have some guys who are just fatting their numbers against lesser opponents. Uh, and the Astros are not that. So I think it could be Astros in five. Okay, I have the Astros in six games. I think the Yankees can win the games when it's Zach Greinke on the mound. I don't even know who the Astros are going to go with for their fourth starter. I doubt it's going to be Wade Miley. So I don't know what options they have as a fourth starter in a seven-game series. Uh, but I think the Yankees can't beat the Astros when Verlander and Cole are on the mound uh, so I have the Astros winning in six games. Uh, as far as the season series, the Astros did win the season series four games uh, to three against the Yankees. So if it does go seven games, I wouldn't be surprised. But, Jim, you and I agree that we think it's going to be the Houston Astros winning the American League pennants and heading into the World Series. Who will they be playing? Well, we're going to take a quick break. And coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, we make our picks for the National League postseason race. I know it's baseball season, but many of us are gearing up for fantasy football. Some of you might be like me and you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. Just recently, I made a new website to track our standings and all of our past champions, which if you want to check out, you can go to DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops like me, no worries. They have a lot of website examples you can use for a variety of topics like a blog or your photography, weddings, and even small business options. Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice they have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create our standings and allow our other participants in the league to track their progress. They also have other built-in tools like storage and custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools you can use to get your website found easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your business, share your talents to the world, or like me, create a website for our fantasy football league. Whatever you're dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. In the National League, the Los Angeles Dodgers were the only 100-win team as they set a new franchise record with 106 wins in 2019. They will await the winner of the wildcard game between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Washington Nationals as that game will be played at the Nationals' home ballpark in Washington, D.C. But, Jim, you know, for the Milwaukee Brewers heading to this last weekend, that was the only intrigue that was going on around the league was could the Milwaukee Brewers catch the St. Louis Cardinals? 
and it really did play into the Brewers' favor as the Chicago Cubs won the first two games of that weekend series against the Cardinals, opening up the door for the Brewers, who are only a game back, to catch St. Louis and maybe even force game 163. But old friend Matt Elbers gave up the walk-off home run to Trevor Story on Saturday, uh, and that really pretty much destroyed the Brewers' chances of catching the St. Louis Cardinals because the Cardinals won on Sunday after Joe Manon was announced that he wasn't going to be coming back to the Cubs. Uh, the Cardinals won 9 to nothing, and it wasn't close at any particular point, so the Brewers are in the wild-card game. But is that something that, when you look at the Milwaukee Brewers, that they're going to regret not capitalizing on that opportunity that they had? Uh, I don't necessarily think so, just because uh, when it comes to the way they're shaped and the, the, the reliance on Josh Hader and the uh, now, now I'm curious about the injury to Lorenzo Cain and whether he'll be full strength, the losing Yelich and Kane might be a little bit too much to take on. Uh, they, they seem a little bit underpowered to me and it hasn't stopped them from dominating in September, but against, you know, a whole slew of quality opponents, I, I think that difference or whatever has been working for them might be harder to determine or, or, or detect you know, watching game to game. This is going to be the first playoff game this season. It begins on Tuesday. This is on TBS. It starts at 7.08 p.m. Central Time. Your pitching matchup for this wildcard game, for the Milwaukee Brewers, it's going to be Brandon Woodruff. And he's going up against Max Scherzer. So, you mentioned the Brewers' September magic, Jim. Do you think it can continue? And can the Brewers upset the Nationals and Max Scherzer? I, you know, I'm loath to place too, uh, too high of expectations on the Nationals because they have a history of disappointing. Yes. Um, but I really, it, it's really hard to um, go against Scherzer, you know, in this situation. Uh, it, it's, it's ruined them before, but uh, I'm going to side with the Mizzou guy. <laughs> I'm going to side with uh, I'm going to go with you as well. I think I have the Nationals winning in this game. The key though is going to be the Nationals bullpen. They have the second worst bullpen in the majors as a unit. They had a season ERA of 5.7. Only the Baltimore Orioles had a worse performing bullpen than the Washington Nationals. So if the Milwaukee Brewers could find a way to be ahead or even have the game tied and they could find a way to force Max Scherzer out, it's going to be really interesting in how the game is played in the late innings. And maybe, just maybe, the Brewers could find a way uh, to come from behind and take a game away um, from the Nationals. And they move on to the Divisional Series where the Nationals continue to scratch their heads and wonder what they need to do to advance in the postseason. But Jim and I both think that they will win this wild card game, which means that the reward of winning the one game playoff, they get to go and face Los Angeles Dodgers for a five game series. And, you know, I, I recited as far as the performance of the Houston Astros as a team. When you look at the offense for the Dodgers, they were fifth in run scored this year. Starting pitching, they had the best ERA for starters. And they have the fifth best bullpen ERA in baseball. Uh, It just feels like we're on this collision course between the Astros and Dodgers. But previewing the Dodgers and Nationals series, offensively for the Nationals, they could score runs. They're right there with the Dodgers. They're sixth offensively and started pitching. While the Dodgers had the best starting pitching ERA, the Nationals had the second best. Because after Max Scherzer, it's Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. But again, it is the bullpen. 
I think is the key difference. And the Dodgers have proved time and time again, especially at home this season, Jim, they just have this unique ability to walk it off, especially when they're playing at Dodger Stadium. They had 10-plus walk-offs this year alone. And for me, I have the Dodgers winning this series in four games. How do you think it will play out between the Dodgers and Nationals? Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Um, the Dodgers, I, I think they, given the Nationals' propensity for disappointing, I'm going to go with a sweep here. Oh, wow. There's, there's going to be a sweep somewhere, so I'm just going to go with it, this one. How do you think that would play out in D.C. if the Nationals, okay, they win the wild card game, but then they get swept by the Dodgers? Uh, depends, I think, how they fail. You know, if it's a um, case where the bullpen collapses and the starting pitching is good, then I think the obvious flaws played up against a superior opponent and so people don't necessarily feel bad about it if it's the starting pitching getting bombed that could be a different thing um, but given how you know how they started the season how they look like they're going to just you know miss the postseason entirely and Dave Martinez is going to be fired and everything else um, I think at this point getting to the postseason was almost um, you know maybe still disappointing but uh, they, they set the expectations low enough early in the year that you uh, maybe any kind of postseason win is going to be uh, uh, better than they thought. Well, we both have the Dodgers moving on to the championship series. So moving over to the other divisional series, I think this is a really intriguing matchup between the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. The Braves won the season series four games to two. Offensively, the Braves were seventh in baseball and runs scored. On the pitching front, though, they had the same ERA between the starters and relievers, 4.19. That was good enough for 12th in baseball for the starting pitching front and 11th in bullpen. For the Cardinals, their strength is pitching and defense. They are the best defense defensive team in baseball, and on the pitching front, you can see those results. The starters have the 6th best ERA, and the bullpen is also has the 6th best ERA. However, offensively for the Cardinals, they struggle to score runs. They're 20th in baseball this year in runs scored. So on paper, Jim, I think the key matchup in this series is the Atlanta Braves offense against the St. Louis Cardinals pitching. Do you think the Cardinals pitching is strong enough to pull off the upset? I think top to bottom it is, although, you know, watching Andrew Miller pitch uh, recently, just uh, if they have to rely on him, it just seems like he's not the, you know, he's clearly not the guy he was with, uh, you know, in, in previous postseasons. And, you know, I, I've seen him, you know, mess up in key situations, 11 homers and 54 innings. That's a little bit of a weakness. They have some guys who can give homers, uh, but that's not really unique to this postseason and bull, uh, especially the series with Atlanta's bullpen having issues. Um, I tend to look for whatever reason, maybe just the name brand players or, um, yeah, their history of overperforming based on who they have. But I've always liked the Cardinals more than, I guess, their record have shown the last couple of years. And Mike Matheny was a part of that, and he's been fired since. So, you know, that's uh, that's out of the way. But uh, I think across the board, as you mentioned, their offensive problems, Matt Carpenter having a down year, uh, Dexter Fowler not being, you know, what he was being better than, you know, his, his Mike Matheny-inspired uh, uh, decline, but, you know, still not really above average Marcelo Zuna being a bit disappointing. Like they have some guys who just, you know, Paul Goldschmidt had a down year. Uh, when you look at you know their production across the board, it's just, they don't really have any star players. They don't have any, I don't think they have any dead spots in their lineup, but they don't have any star players. So um, 
I, I think I just like them a bit better just because they don't have any... I think they could have heroes from up and down the lineup, and I kind of like that about them combined with their you know, pretty decent top-to-bottom pitching staff, and I think that can be enough to differentiate them in the series against an opponent that also has some sizable weaknesses. Yeah, because I don't know who Tommy Erdman is, but he's been great lately for the St. Louis Cardinals coming up with big hits. I think it also helps quite a bit to have Yadier Molina back in the lineup and behind home plate as well. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the St. Louis Cardinals in the upset. I have the Cardinals winning this series in five games, pulling off the the road upset uh, as that fifth game would, would be playing in Atlanta. Do you see the, the series going all five games, or do you think St. Louis can clinch at home? I think it'll be Cardinals in five, at least. Uh, it seems like the, the Atlanta, yeah, uh, they seem like they're a year away from being a comprehensive unit that can go against the Dodgers. I mean, I think mm-hmm. they're ahead of schedule when it comes to the rebuild. And even, you know, when they were going about their off season, uh, people thought they were, they could do more and uh, they didn't quite add as aggressively as the talent dictated. And now the talent is showing that, you know, they can go all out with additions because they do look like an impending juggernaut. So uh, this year just seems like they're a bit short when it comes to uh, the pitching side. Yeah, again, it's the key matchup, though. If the Braves' offense can generate runs against the Cardinals' starting pitching, I think Atlanta could still win this series. But right now, my faith, Jim, is with the Cardinals' starting pitching and bullpen, being able to keep the Atlanta Braves at bay long enough for their offense to generate enough run support to pull off the upset. So then we both have the St. Louis Cardinals and we have the Los Angeles Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. And when it comes to the Dodgers and Cardinals, again, the Dodgers just do everything better than St. Louis. And while I think St. Louis could find a way to shut down the Atlanta Braves offense, I just don't think St. Louis's offense has any chance against the Dodgers pitching. And I have the Dodgers winning this series, I think, pretty easily in five games. How do you think the National League Championship Series would play out between the Dodgers and Cardinals? Yeah, I think uh, Dodgers in six, um, just because I have them sweeping the first series, so it, it evens out. But yeah, I, I picked the Dodgers the last two years, and they haven't let me down, so I'm sticking with them. All right. Sound analysis. Uh, so in the World Series, we have the same World Series matchup, Jim. The Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I think out of all the possible combinations of teams to face each other in the World Series, I think this is the best matchup. You have two super teams that just across the board, terrific offensively, starting pitching. Uh, And then I think both teams have really strong bullpens as well that will keep the interest. And the last time that these two teams played in the World Series, we just saw so much offense, so many home runs. Uh, it, I I had a lot of fun watching the World Series in 2017. Are you looking forward to this World Series matchup, or would you like to see a different combination of teams in the World Series? No, I would like to see, you know, of all the teams, this is the the best possible product of deep lineups, deep pitching staffs. You're going to see some amazing performances. You're going to see hitters, I, I think, who would upset those amazing pitching matchups just by, with a with well timed uh, heroics. So uh, it's just uh, yeah, I picked uh, 
this is the matchup I picked last year with the Astros and Dodgers. The Red Sox got in the way, but uh, I just, you know, it's hard to deny the depth, you know, the combination of depth and star power. Uh, well, I'll guess I'll wait till we give our, should I roll straight into my prediction? Sure. Who do you, who would you have winning the World Series between the Astros and Dodgers? I think I'm going to go with the Dodgers. I think they finally get it done this year. Uh, my hesitation with like, Rolling with the Astros too heavily is that they are a bit banged up and they've been battling injuries all year and that kind of bit them. Uh, so that, you know, they've had guys come back and, and, you know, and, and look fine. But just when you look at the, uh, the health, I think the Dodgers are a bit better shape and deeper. And, you know, given the nature of postseason games and the stress put on some guys and, uh, you know, how everybody wants to play and, and, and be on the field, even if they're not a hundred percent, uh, I kind of wonder if maybe some health issues will pop up later in the series to, or like later in October to where, uh, you know, some some guys just aren't able to quite get up for the games as they would in the regular season. So I think the Dodgers are just a bit deeper and might be able to survive that kind of grind. OK, so I have the Houston Astros winning the World Series because, again, of Verlander and Garrett Cole. But you do have some really intriguing matchups, too. You have, of course, Zach Greinke facing the Dodgers, and you have Jordan Alvarez, who was traded from the Dodgers to the Houston Astros. Uh, so I think the Astros offensively are just a bit stronger than the Dodgers, and that's why I'm going to take the Houston Astros. But it's going to be a very tight series. I have the Astros over the Dodgers in seven games. I'm going to go with Dodgers in six. Dodgers in six games. I'm just, yep. Yeah, the Houston won 107 games, the Dodgers 106. So I just want to make sure that I didn't miss anything on the last day, but I thought they had that uh, uh, locked up. But yes, um, I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, whether, um, you know, giving some thought, if the DH or the absence of DH affects one team more than the other, but they're so national, you know, the Dodgers are so deep that they have hitters to spare. Right. And the, the games in Los Angeles, you know, being able to neutralize. The Astros not having Jordan Alvarez, yeah, I, I think is a big advantage for Los Angeles. That's why I think the series goes seven games, and Houston ends up winning it at home because I think home field advantage is going to play a factor because they can have Alvarez in that lineup for four, maybe up to five plate appearances in those games instead of just one plate appearance coming off the bench because you don't you don't want Alvarez out in the outfield whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I have the Dodgers winning their games at home, and I have the Astros winning their games at home, seven games. But if the Dodgers could steal a game in Houston, yeah, I can I can see where you're right, Jim, that the Dodgers finally find a way to win the World Series, uh, their first World Series title since 1988. But I have the Houston Astros winning their second World Series title uh, and maybe starting up a dynasty here as they won it in 2017 and then reached the American League Championship Series in 2018. And add another World Series title, and then then we'll see the price tag of Garrett Cole and how high it goes uh, when free agency kicks in. But again, we'd love to see your guys' picks for the postseason on who you have winning each of the series in the postseason. So again, go to SoxMachine.com and you can play along with the Sox Machine playoff pick'em. But coming up next, it's your guys' questions in PO Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. 
It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, the first question we have in the mailbag comes from Michael Bartelli, and Michael is asking, did Michael Kopech's service time clock run this season since he was on the big league roster at the time of his injury? Yes, it did. It cost him a year of service time, so uh, it's basically like he was on the roster the entire season. Um, that's going to set up, I think, one of the more interesting subplots early in 2020. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, that Rick Hahn, you know, wants to add two starters and you know, if you look at the pitching rotation, theoretically, they should only need one starter if Michael Kopech is ready to pitch uh, the entirety of the 2020 season. Um, but, you know, given the White Sox history with Tommy John surgeries and, and uh, stilted comebacks from them, especially for starting pitching, and um, given that Kopech hadn't quite established himself as a major league pitcher, he was certainly on track to uh, last year, but he didn't quite, you know, log enough starts and innings to really feel like he had cemented himself in the majors. I can see, you know, real actual baseball reasons for having him start the year in Charlotte, just to make sure he gets up to speed and, you know, doesn't uh, have the kind of, uh, you know, if he has the kind of command leg that uh, pitchers often have coming back from Tommy John surgery, uh, it doesn't cost him in any meaningful way. I, I mean, pitching in Charlotte's going to be tough if the Major League Baseball comes back there, but, um, you know, he should get some time to iron out his issues, make sure he gets back to full speed and and, and full, you know, velocity and most of his command, I can't imagine his command will be impeccable even maybe in the first half, but by the second half it might show up. But I can see him giving him some time in Charlotte, but right now he has 41 days of service time. So if you want to try to get that year of service time back or get him back to a full seven years of healthy team control, uh, they would have to wait until you know, probably late May in order to do it. Um, so that'll be, I guess, a fascinating subplot is whether the White Sox try to do that, um, you know, if they're off to a strong enough start where they need him, you know, if they have enough uh, rotation depth to where they can take their time. Um, there will be baseball reasons, unlike, you know, like Luis Robert keeping him down in the minors this year and Luis uh, Eloy Jimenez the year, uh, year before. Um, there are actual baseball reasons to keep him down, but there might not be baseball reasons to hold him down, you know, late April going into early May. So that'll be something I'm watching. And uh, that's the, maybe the last... That might be the last service time issue the White Sox really wrestle with the rest of the way. I hope so. <laughs> I'm yeah. done. I'm done talking about service time for a really yep. long time. So. But I do hope the White Sox build enough rotation rotation depth without Kopech to where he's more of a uh, supplemental player uh, than somebody who's necessary to win 81 to 85 games. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from White Sox Slater. And Slater's asking, what would we think about Omar Vizquel coming up to be part of the 2020 coaching staff to kind of go full circle from our conversation earlier in the podcast about who could be replaced in the coaching staff for Rick Renteria? Well, I'm not sure about you. I won't speak for you, but I think for me, I would be a bit reluctant to just because I think, you know, Vizquel is a popular choice to replace Rick Renteria, even though he has old school tendencies, maybe more severe old school tendencies than Renteria does um, when it comes to bunting and, and running like mad on the base paths to 
detrimental stolen base success rates. Um, yeah, the, the kind of uh, play he endorses in the minors doesn't really translate to major league success, especially the kind of roster they have. So I don't see anything there that would make Vizquel a, a prime managerial candidate for the White Sox. And if he's there and if Renteria is disappointing, you'll hear people clamoring for that and that'd be kind of annoying. But if you can just limit him to coach aspirations and fan aspirations for coach, uh, I'm not entirely certain. I, I know I've heard with the uh, with White Sox infielders that he's been, you know, hands on when it comes to infield defense. And Laz Rivera pointed to enjoying with working with uh, Vizquel every day um, when when they overlapped. Uh, they've overlapped in Winston Salem and Birmingham. He's enjoyed that, and I think Rivera's defense is okay. Um, but yeah, that's that limited sample size into I guess any kind of hands on instruction you can provide and whether it's actually, you know, gets results. So I would feel more or less, I would welcome the change and be like, oh, something different. But I would also hope that the White Sox expand their search beyond just who is already in-house. So let's say the White Sox move on from Todd Steverson. And they wanted somebody internally. It's Frank Medichino, right? And Charlotte? Yes. And it seemed like there was a lot of positive feedback from... White Sox prospects working with him and the White Sox decided that, Hey, this is someone that's already familiar with our hitters that are coming up to the system that are very important to our success in 2020, especially for Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert. And who knows, maybe even Zach Collins that, okay, let's say you have Medicino come up from Charlotte and join Rick Renteria's uh, staff, And then if you decide to move on from Nick Capra at third base coach and Daryl Boston, would you bring up Mark Gruzlianic, who is the manager of the Charlotte Knights, to join the coaching staff? I'm painting this picture because I don't know about Omar Vizquel being on the coaching staff for the White Sox, but if the White Sox make some internal promotions from Charlotte to Chicago, I could see Omar Vizquel taking over as the manager of the Charlotte Knights to help build up his resume to get an opportunity to manage elsewhere in Major League Baseball because based on the success of the Birmingham Barons this year or a lack thereof, I just still don't like his chances despite the job openings this, that are upcoming in Major League Baseball, Jim, as at the time we're recording this, Buster Oldney's reporting that the Los Angeles Angels right now are considering moving on uh, for Brad Osmus after a season as their manager, probably to hmm. go after... Joe Madden, who was released by the Cubs, and Joe Madden was the pitching coach, or I'm sorry, bench coach of the Angels for a long time under Mike Sosha before taking over for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, but still, I, I just don't like Omar Vizquel's chances of landing a manager job this upcoming offseason, and I still am expecting him to stay within the White Sox organization, if that makes sense, but not in Chicago, but still in the minors. Yeah, it, it, you know, uh, Vizquel lost out to Osmus, so I guess that doesn't reflect well if the Angels are already kind of out on Osmus, and uh, based on what we saw when the White Sox played him, you know, Brad Osmus, I don't think is a very good manager, and I was surprised he got that job, but um, when it comes to, you know, the way he was hired, you know, he got one of those uh, you know, kind of sketchy special assistant jobs that usually just are a way to keep a manager in waiting, it's just, it's... A little bit weird. I think Vizquel was a you know, and and others going for the Angels job were at a disadvantage. But you know there were things that he wasn't you know necessarily up on the most recent analytics, uh, uh, you know analytic uh, analytically informed decisions. I guess I would say and and the way organizations are run and you know maybe he's addressed that some or maybe he's just in that weird uh, uh, 
gray area with the White Sox organization in between, you know, the, the more analytically uh, inclined developments in A-ball and the, you know, major league product, which may be undergoing some changes themselves. So it's a little bit iffy there. Uh, I can't see the, the promotions being, you know, part of the thing. I can see Mark Grudzlanik not really being part of the big picture just because, um, you know, I, I just triple A managers seem more or less interchangeable. Uh, but yeah, Minakino would be interesting. It's just hard to tell with the way Charlotte was this year, the extreme hitting environment. I like the quotes I heard from him. <laughs> he made a lot of sense when he talked. Uh, and and you can't you know quibble the performances, but just it was. I think a lot of the performances were not uh, anything that he yeah you know, anything he had to do with. So you know his his experience working with Zach Collins and and being there for Collins's uh, implementation of his his uh, stance changes and Adam Engel coming back looking a little bit better. There were some improvements there uh, mid-season that maybe there is something to Menachino and wouldn't necessarily be opposed to it. It would be a pleasant kind of change, but again, you know, like we're talking about with Vizquel and the bench coach job, I wouldn't mind also seeing it opened up, but maybe Menachino is, you know, he was somebody brought in from the outside to fill that job. So he's not necessarily like the most internal of candidates. Well, Slater, thank you so much. For your question, our next P.O. Sox question comes from Bob Squad. And Bob Squad, who's a Patreon supporter, thank you so much for your support, Bob Squad, is asking Jim, so, Lurie Garcia, Adam Engel, and Ryan Goings finished the season with near-identical OPSs. How would you rank them, one through three, for their expected performances in 2020? Yeah, there were seven points apart, <laughs> separating the three players from 681 to 688. I would say Goins would be last just because a lot of his performance was front-loaded. Uh, you know, had an incredible start, um, unusual power and play discipline, and then he more or less looked like the replacement-level Ryan Goins that had bounced between Toronto and Kansas City and minor league contracts at the end of it. And so, yeah, he's not in plans. I would put Larry second. Uh, I think he, you know, the most important thing he proved is that he could stay on the field for a full season. Um, and then that's certainly something he had to show, but I think he also showed that, you know, and part of it's overexposure and just having to play so much that he's not really a difference maker at any one position for a full season. He's nice. Got to patch in different spots and his value is being a competent short-term starter at certain positions, but he's not really somebody who can play a uh, hundred and thirty games at one spot and, and really make a difference. So I think Angle, based on how he started, how he came back, how he showed some, showed some pull field power and elevating the ball and ripping it a little bit, along with uh, you know really good center field defense, is uh, a different guy and and more rosterable than he's ever been. And you know if if he were somebody whose strengths could be um, underlined by a team and is uh, <laughs> he wasn't somebody who had to start so many games. Uh, he would be more rosterable in previous seasons, but now he's actually you know, showing his bat can uh, can sting the ball a little bit. So that that's more interesting than he's ever been. I think Lairi is not as interesting as he's been before. Uh, I think Angle is more interesting uh, than he's ever shown. The one thing is that he, is, he was three for six stealing bases, and that's disappointing. Uh, the man of steel um, moniker has not really shown up there. And, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to be part of his game, and, and he seems like somebody who needs to have a lot of things working for him in order to be an average starter. But he showed more, and I don't know what you do with that, but um, 
with the rosters expanding to 26 and having more spots for position players who do one thing really well, uh, I think I would take Angle doing one thing really well over Leary doing a bunch of things okay um, if I had to pick just one. Well, thank you so much for our, your question, Bob Squad. Our next question comes from David. And David is asking, what was yours, Jim, and Josh's favorite on-field moment in 2019, favorite off-field moment? Well, it's going to be an obvious choice, but I do think Eloy's homer at Wrigley Field is the most memorable on-field moment for me. Okay. I do like that one. I also like Tim Anderson's walk-off home run against Detroit and the craziest game of the season outside of Philadelphia, uh, where that was the one that Jose Abreu hit a home run but wasn't a home run game. <laughs> yeah. If you remember that one. I was, yep, in, yep. I was in Winston-Salem watching that game on my smartphone after covering the Dash game and watching Luis Robert go 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. And, uh, yeah, I just think from that game, the bat spike for Tim Anderson hitting that walk-off home run, I think was a spark for the rest of the season that we saw from Tim Anderson this year. And I think, I still agree with you, Jim. I think when we look back, you know, Aloy Jimenez's home run at Wrigley Field, there's just a lot riding on that home run, a lot of emotions for him being traded from the Cubs to the White Sox and, you know, White Sox fans getting that opportunity to shove it in the Cubs fans' faces of we're upcoming and thank you for this prospect, not knowing on how the Cubs season was ultimately going to end. Uh, but I, I think in the end, just to be different, but I think Tim Anderson's walk-off home run back in April against the Detroit Tigers in one of the crazier games this season, I think really did create a spark for Tim Anderson and the team itself to be hovering around 500 entering the All-Star break. I think my favorite Tim Anderson moment was his winning uh, his winning hit against the Royals. Uh, after he got hit in the... He got, got clipped by the uh, Glenn Sparkman pitch and Sparkman got ejected. And just after all the yeah, the Brad Keller stuff and getting hits and coming up with a game-winning double, I think, in the eighth inning, uh, even though it was, I think, terrible circumstances that set up that uh, that winner, it was nice to see him do it and deliver that dagger against a team that uh, threw at him, <laughs> assaulted him. So I, I like that one. I also like to Brayu's uh, homer over the green monster, uh, the 10-pitch at bat that silenced Fenway Park. That was really memorable to me just uh terms of just how the park sounded after he hit that pitch like upon contact the oh just <laughs> making making Fenway Park go silent uh when you know, a near capacity crowd that's always fun is there a favorite off-field moment I think I'm gonna go with the alternative broadcast booths okay yeah it's like Bill Walton wasn't my favorite, but I like what he brought and, and the kind of possibilities he opened up for future years. I like Mike Sherbooth a lot the next day, uh, the way he fit in and the way he talked with Benetti and, and just the different voices and how they brought different viewers into the White Sox who you know, maybe would never look at a White Sox game in August uh, were tuning in and enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, I think I would go with that as far as the off-field moment that's I think, you know, one, I enjoyed, and two, just opened up a lot of possibilities for future seasons. I agree. I think Bill Walton's broadcast. I, I In the end, I think I enjoyed that more just because it was chaotic and I like chaos. Yeah. 
But that's a great question, David. And we've been asking on Twitter what everyone's favorite on-field and off-field moment was for the Chicago White Sox in 2019. If you guys have your favorites as well, you can post them in the comments section for the podcast pages, whether on SoxMachine.com or on Patreon for a Patreon supporter. So, David, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or a topic that you would like to ask us for a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And also help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters always get additional content. They get ad-free episodes of the podcast to get an opportunity to ask additional PO Sox questions as well that Jim and I always answer. And for our upcoming podcast schedule, when we break down uh, as far as positions, we're going to be asking our Patreon supporters to be part of the show and leaving us voicemails and giving us uh, their grades for certain players uh, on the upcoming podcast episode so again that podcast schedule so the next one so starting next week which will be released on monday october 7th we're going to be reviewing the white Sox infielders on october 14th it will be the outfielders october 21st it will be the pitchers and at the end of october hopefully the world series has concluded and it'll be the opening of free agency because our final podcast episode of the month of october We'll be reviewing the White Sox management as far as the work that Rick Renteria did and the White Sox front office for the 2019 season. But again, you get an opportunity right now to submit your grades for the 2019 White Sox season so we can get your thoughts and we'll share those results on the upcoming podcast episodes. But that will do it for this podcast episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.